I'm Kevin McDonald, and you're listening to the great, big, beautiful podcast. This is the big, great, beautiful. You're listening to a beautiful podcast. You know what? You're listening to a beautiful podcast that happens to be a great, big, beautiful podcast. I'm Kevin McDonald still. Thank you very much. Keep listening. Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone. Not to mention laser discs, high-def TV. You are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... You know, for example, people talk about writer's block all the time as if it were real. And because of, and it's simply not. Mm-hmm. You know, the truth is, it is simply hard to write sometimes, the same as any other professional or creative endeavor. You know, people will be like, you say writer's block, and people are like, oh, ooh, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's like you've just said, I have meningitis, you know? <laughs> And it's like, oh, f- writer's block. Do you, need, do you get some amoxicillin for that? Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at the gbbpodcast.com and on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, uh, everywhere else at the GBB podcast. I am your host, Jamie Green, and joining me this week is Samantha. Hello, thanks for having me back. Oh, it's just such a pleasure to have you. I can never say no to you. You better not, if you know what's good <laughs> for you. <laughs> How have you been? Uh, I've been busy. I, you know, I was. I'm doing well, just extremely busy. So. Yeah. You are in what uh, those of us on the coasts like to call flyover country for the most part. How is summer treating you so far? Uh, Summer has been treating me hot. Hot and rainy, um, which is kind of odd for May in Ohio. Um, It's usually April showers bring May flowers, but apparently it's May showers bring nothing. We've gotten a lot of rain this year, too, and uh, the humidity has has arrived. I I live near D.C., um, the swamp, as as everybody likes to call it, and (laughs) yeah, the humidity has arrived, and it's it's not too pleasant outside. Yeah. But that's why God invented air air conditioning, right? Did he invent that? I don't recall. Yes, yes. No, some... that was that was handed down to Adam and Eve, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah mm. it was like it was like uh, the here's the tree of knowledge and here's air conditioning. That's kind of like what he gave. <laughs> it should have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, this week, um, man, oh man, are you guys in for a treat? So let me give some, uh, I, I guess, backstory here. So we had been set up to talk to Pat Rothfuss. My gosh, Sam, was it like September? It was months ago. Yep, it was last year. Yeah, it was late last year, like fall, before the, even the winter. And um, he had some stuff going on and scheduled, like we, we had a time set up and um, that was just like a particularly bad day for him. And, and so it's like that time fell through and we were just never able to reschedule with him for one reason or another. Um, but they just came back and said, hey, we've got this. He's got the the World Builders Geek Do- Geeks Doing Good fundraiser coming up. Can we maybe, if you're still interested, tie it to that? 
And again, who am I to say no, you know, to Sam and, you know, to, to, to you or to Pat Rothfuss, you know, like I can't do it. I can't say no. So, of course, I said yes. <laughs> um, and my gosh. So how do I say this? So what you and I had said afterwards is um, the best interviews are the ones that that you don't know what's coming or, or that's not how to, the best interviews are the ones that go so far off script that we just throw away the questions, you know, like the questions and the, the preparation we had done was just for naught because it, we, we didn't even use it. And this was that to a T. Oh, oh yes. We went down so many rabbit holes that you just wouldn't have known were there for our yeah. conversation. Um, and it was it was another one of those because I've said this before, and it's usually about um, authors or um, oh, and I'm going to blank on their names. The gentleman that uh, the animators that did the um, oh from Tonko House, you were on that yes. one, yes, okay. And these folks are by trade storytellers, so you put a microphone in front of them and ask them a couple questions, and you're just on for the ride. After that, they're just taking you along as they tell you whatever story they need to share that day. And those have been some of my favorite ones though. Not that I don't enjoy talking clearly I do, but (laughs) I've, I love when I can ask one question and then five, 10 minutes later, I'm like, how did we even end up here? (laughs) Or like you ask a question and by the time they get to the end of whatever they were saying, like you had forgotten that you even asked the question. You're like, well, what did I, what why what were you answering again? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember asking about macaroni and cheese. Okay, no, we didn't talk about that, but um, yeah, this was one of those, and this was one of those where I really had to rein it in because he was hilarious. Yeah, and I kept laughing. And when you're recording like this, that can you know come in over somebody's words, and I didn't want to do that, but he just had me in stitches for a lot of it. I think you might've noticed I muted a few times because I couldn't, it was the wheezing tears flowing kind of laughter. There was one moment and this will make sense when I explain that we use Skype for this and we had all of us had our, our cameras on so we could see one another, but there was one moment and I forget when it was, what he was saying, but you almost fell out of your chair. Like you just kind of like disappeared from the screen because you had fallen over. (laughs) And I was actually a little bit worried. I thought you had maybe fallen. I did. I was because I was covering my mouth, <laughs> but I was laughing so hard. And it was the one where you start to need to suck air yeah. in. So I leaned forward so I could mute. Like I just dipped down, just wham, yeah. um, to, to do that. And then I raised back up and was like fanning myself and <laughs> caught my breath and unmuted again. But I, I, I don't remember which part it was either. And I think that's a testament to how many funny moments there were yeah. in the conversation. So we, we talk about a lot. Um, we do start off talking, obviously, about the Geeks Doing Good fundraiser, which is running this week. For those of you listening to this episode, when it's new, uh, it's running from June 4th through June 11th, uh, 2018. And if you go to the World Builders um, website, or if you just you know Google search World Builders or Geeks Doing Good, Pat Rothfuss, anything, it'll all take you to it. Uh, they made a ch- few changes this year. If you are familiar with their fundraiser, they used to run it on Indiegogo, which is like a Kickstarter. It's a crowdfunding platform. But 
they had the technology and they had the manpower and they had the know-how to sort of bring it into their own shop. So if they're running it out of the world builders marketplace, uh, everything is still going to charity. It's still going to uh, Heifer International and a couple other charities. You're going to still find lots of really great stuff from lots of really great creators. So definitely go check that out. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, break the fourth wall here and say, we're actually recording this before it goes live. So I don't even know what's there. Um, and I noticed uh, when I asked him that, I said, do you, do you have any sort of personal favorite cool stuff that's available this year? He didn't really answer it. So I don't know if he was intentionally being um, cagey about what's what's going to be on sale or what's going to be on offer. But uh, if you're listening to this now, it is live. So go check it out, definitely. But we talk about a lot of other stuff. Um, we... No joke, we probably had like 20 either questions or just points to raise that we were hopeful that would spin off into a, a, a discussion. We didn't even get to them. We had him for an hour and a half, uh, it turned out. So it, and, and we didn't get to probably 75% of what we thought we were going to talk about, if that gives you any idea of how off the rails this one went. <laughs> Well, and luckily, I, I think um, we've got him right there on record recorded <laughs> saying he would love to come back and finish that conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm going to yeah. take him up on that, too. We'll, we'll let some time pass so we can have some more fresh stuff to talk about. Um, but, man, he's just a delight. He's just a delight. I have seen him a couple times before. Uh, I mentioned this. You know, He was on the Joko Cruise when I was there, and I saw him a few times, different panels and that. Last year at New York Comic Con, I did a huge roundtable for last year's Joko Cruise, which I wasn't on, but I sat, uh, you know, I had a big roundtable where I had Jonathan Colton, Paul and Storm, Pat Rothfuss was there. Um, let's see, Gene Gray was there, Travis McElroy. Mm, I'm trying to remember who else was there. Anyway, I wrote that up. There was two huge articles that I put up on Geek Dad at the time. Um, I'll see if I can remember to link to those if you're interested in going back to see what we talked about. But man, he's just a delight, just such a great guy um, and doesn't need much prompting to just go off for 20 minutes and just talk. And um, it was just a delight. I mean, I just keep saying it was a delight, but like the the, the conversation we had and where he took the conversation uh, was just phenomenal. So um, Sam, unless you've got anything else that you feel people need to know before we go in, I think we can just 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 dive in. Oh yes, just let's do it. it. Enjoy, please, and, and and stick around. Don't give up like halfway through because some of the best stuff is toward the end. And if you haven't heard him talk about T. S. Eliot, don't turn off the interview. Wait until at least you hear him talk about T. S. Eliot. You won't. You won't oh. be sorry. Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, we This has been a long time coming. I don't know if you remember, we uh, had this scheduled a few months back and it fell through. So I'm really glad we were able to uh, make this work finally. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sorry to kind of crap out on you before. oh you had a very good excuse i'm just i'm you know it's it's it was everything sometimes things get out of our control so that's perfectly fine <laughs> pretty um, much my the entirety of my life and career at this point <laughs> is just spiraling wildly into madness <laughs> um uh, let's talk uh, right off the bat let's talk geeks doing good uh let's talk the fundraiser it is this week um as people who are listening to this uh if they're listening to it live that it's this week 
How did that first come about? Why? How did that come about as something that you wanted to do? Well, um, gosh, it's I think at least three or four uh, year. It's at least four years old at this point, um, and it's just a week's worth of us running in uh, what used to be an Indiegogo, mm-hmm. um, where we would sort of. Uh, make a bunch of stuff available for purchase or pre-order really. Um, and we did it because we had a pretty successful online store and a pretty successful end of year fundraiser, but we were looking to do maybe another fundraiser partway through the year, uh, halfway through the year. We still internally, we kind of, uh, refer to this one as the mid season fundraiser. Okay. And, um, but what we also wanted to do is have the opportunity to try doing some new product development things. Um, but that's really hard to take a flyer on to just say, Hey, let's order a thousand (laughs) t-shirts. Um, like, Oh no, we sold a hundred of them. We lost (laughs) money. We lost the charity's money. That's a bad scene. Yeah. So, um, you know, pursuing this more as a, um, like a pre-order sort of Kickstarter Indiegogo thing. It also let us reach out and do stuff with other, um, I hate that. I don't want to say content providers. That sounds so awful, but like other cool creative folks, like doing t-shirts for other writers or other podcasts. Um, you know, we're, we're working increasingly with, um, like, people who do comics. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but again, that's a big risk. We're like, Ooh, will their fan base turn out for a t-shirt or sweatbands or jewelry or a ceramic mug? Um, And so it would allow us to sort of minimize everyone's risk, but while still producing cool things for fans um, and making money for the charity and also providing a revenue stream for uh, these independent creators. Yeah. So uh, talk a little bit about how, not how, but why, because you had mentioned it was Indiegogo in years past, and now you're, you've moved over to the World Builders Marketplace. Why make that jump? Because it seems to me on the outside, knowing very little about how it works, you know, you're talking about if you have to make all this stuff in advance, if you have things available in the marketplace, doesn't that sort of lead down that road? Like, oh, let's just have a thousand T-shirts ready for the ready for the people who when who want them. We are still doing chunks of this as, you know, you are ordering in advance, except now we're not running it through Indiegogo. One of the, I mean, the upside of Indiegogo is it's sort of a known quantity mm-hmm. and, you know, people find that comforting. You already have an Indiegogo account. You already have a Kickstarter account. Um, there's a sort of brand yeah. like comfort there. Um, the problem is, is that all those platforms, they take a bite. And if we're bringing people in to that system, knowing that they would already back our stuff, and if we have the technology to do all of that in our store, but then to cough up 10% of our fundraiser to Indiegogo, right. it ends up being like $20,000, yeah. which like we can like 
we can buy a lot of chickens yeah. for families. You can do a with lot of good with dollars. that. <laughs> we can do a lot of it, it really makes our pie chart look better. And we're always striving to be like really efficient with the money people trust us with. Sure. You know, we want not only to make sure a lot of it goes to charity, but we want the charities to be the best charities. Um, the goods we produce, we want them to be the best goods and like actually quality merchandise. And then it starts, you get levels and levels beyond that. Like we want these goods to be produced in such a way that they are good for the environment. Mm -hmm. We want these goods to be produced in such a way that they're good for the overall economy. Um, an economy is actually remarkably like an ecosystem if you look at it the right way. And that means, you know, sure, we could get a bunch of mugs made for 50 cents in China. Um, but instead we do it here in the US at a facility that pays like that actually supports union mm. um and that means like ooh we don't get a 50 cent mug so we can't <laughs> sell it to you for 10 dollars and make money mm -hmm. it means that like okay that mug's going to cost us 2 dollars but uh but you know our carbon footprint is less cuz we're not putting it on a freighter right um you know we're supporting people having good lives you know, and, and supporting their families and paying their mortgages because they belong to a union and they're making a stable wage. We really go all the way down the rabbit hole um, and trying to, you know, do good in all ways possible. And where that's not possible, we at least try to mitigate like <laughs> like how much because you can't win all the time. We try to try to mitigate the potential negatives wherever possible too. Yeah. What are, um, being a little bit nosy, what are some of the highlights for you this year of stuff that people can buy? You know, it's funny. Um, <clears throat> increasingly they're like, so here's the product list for this year. And I'm like, and part of me is a little like, oh, there's not proportionally, it's not nearly as much of my stuff. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it used to be just the Pat Rothfuss show. Right. But like, the truth is, I've been telling them for years, every, and I'm like, if all of this centers around me, then World Builders is very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, if I die, if I have a hu huge PR mishap, um, you know, yeah, if please, I suddenly... Please don't have one of those. I've had <laughs> enough of those PR mishaps with authors thing. So. Right? Or, or just like with anyone with who's anyone. like... Like, oh, no. Oh, no. Pat pulled a Mel Gibson. Oh, no. Like, oh, no. Like, that person is actually really, really awful. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, like, and I, I don't think I have any skeletons like that looking in my closet. But, like, who knows? And the, the, the thing we always joke about internally is we talk about the knock on the head. Which, like, what if you get a knock on the head and you go a little nuts? And I always thought it was just sort of a turn of phrase. Yeah. But like the truth is, it's that's like a medical thing. You can get hit on the head and it absolutely affects your personality. It is not a weird SNL skit. Yeah. It's not just like it's not just like taking Ambien by accident and becoming a racist. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. <laughs> like I, I really want to see that warning label. I really need to read that sheet that my pharmacist gives me. Oh no. What about my levothyroxine? Oh no. Now I'm sexist. Um <laughs> <laughs> it was mild misogyny. Oh no! 
but no, the uh, the truth is, I've been saying let's build out into the community for a long time because we're already so grassroots. Let's reach out to the community. Let's do stuff with other authors, um, you know, other artists, webcomic people, um, because those people are eager to help. And, you know, like, hell, like a lot of these webcomics have like 30, 40,000 people that like delightedly show up for their content every yeah. day. Yeah. And I'm like, and they're like, boy, I'd love to help a charity, but it's hard for me to maintain my health insurance. And I'm like, no, that's cool. Come and do a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, come and do a t-shirt. You make some more money so your kids can go to college. <laughs> um, your fans get to like fly their geek flag proudly and wear your merch. You don't have to have a living room full of bubble mailers for the next <laughs> six months. Yeah, and, that's, that's got to be really attractive for a lot of these people. They don't have to run their own Kickstarter. They don't have to, you know, worry about shipping and mailing and keeping track of everybody's addresses and orders and blah. It's like, you know, you want to be an artist. You don't want to be the business person who handles it all. Exactly. And like, honestly, if I had it all to do over, I would still do world builders. But like. I mean, I did. There was a lot of times where this literally happened out of my living room. Mm-hmm. And then it, you know, and then I'm like, okay, I better go, I better go have a, a remote office so I can get writing done. And then that remote office turned into the World Builders headquarters <laughs> and store. And I'm like, huh, boy, not a whole lot of writing didn't happen during those eight months. I'll tell you that for free. Um, and, you know, and so I, I say to people, I'm like, hey, if you want to do this, come to us, you know, First off, you don't have to outlay money. You don't have to take a risk on the T-shirts. You don't have to waste your time. Um, and we're efficient, you know. And like, my people make a good, good money, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, and they, uh, well, I mean, good money, money for Central Wisconsin, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. And and we can have really efficient processes because, like, we do this all the time. Whereas, like, it doesn't matter how good you get at mailing stuff out of your living room, you don't have a packing table. Mm-hmm. You're not buying supplies in bulk. You know, you don't have someone whose only job is to, like, wrap stuff up and then put it in a bin and then, you know, and then get a shipping discount yeah. because you do, you ship literally tons of merchandise all the time. Um, you know, I, I really, it's it's sort of, it's one of those delightful everyone does win situations, mm-hmm. um, which is why I love welcoming people into Geeks Doing Good and into the World Builders store. Um, everybody, everybody ends up happy there. So, so Geeks Doing Good is just like one of the events that World Builders does. Um, so what are some of the other opportunities that you know of that people have to get involved um, if you really want to stay abreast of that, we have a, a mailing list, um, that you can find on the, on the website, worldbuilders.org. Um, and so, you know, we do different events at conventions. Um, um, I'm, and I would hesitate to say we always do one at, um, uh, sorry, I'm st- um, Emerald City Comic Con, right. um, where we uh, invite people to come and 
play games with authors and game designers and and the geek glitterati. Um, <laughs> Wait, and, we have glitterati. Wait a oh, <laughs> well, it's a little bit different. It's like you know, uh, me and Mike Cole and Sam Sykes and that's glitterati. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that works. Yeah, um, I, I would consider that. You know, Robin Hobb swings by and. Um, and it's a good time. We'll do those at conventions, sort of like a game night and there's a silent auction and, um, and those are really nice. We do those at a couple of different conventions. Some conventions, it works better than others. Um, and we're still figuring out like how many we want to do a year because there's staffing issues. There's just a lot of plates to spin. Yeah. So, I mean, last year, I know we did one at New York Comic Con. I don't know if we're going to try to repeat that. Um, because, you know, like, maybe it just doesn't fly at New York the way that it does at Emerald City. Is it different, um, was, did you find that it was just a different audience, different type of people? You know, it's every con is so different. Yeah. Every city is so different. Uh, one of the big differences is, like, Seattle is just a really good city for me for some reason. And I think part of it is that I keep I, I've gone out there very consistently on trips. Mm -hmm. And so and also it's probably the mentality of the population in general. There's a real strong sci-fi fantasy community there. Very socially progressive. Um, New York, I don't get out to very often. And I think I don't know, for a lot of people like I'll do a signing in Seattle and 600 people show up. Mm -hmm. I'll do a signing in New York and 200 people will show up. Wow. And like, why is that? Well, yeah. I think part of it is it's like you've got a literally a billion things you could do that are absolutely baller in New York every day. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like a, a hundred indie music venues and all the museums and whatever. There's just like such you know, such a signal to noise ratio there. Mm -hmm. Plus we've been doing the Emerald city one for so long. It's an established feature. Whereas the one we did in New York was, they didn't was know the what to expect. Year. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And like, we didn't know what to expect in terms of the venue and the catering and who do you have to talk to for a union? Is it in the convention center? Is it off site? Right. Again, so many, so many plates to juggle. So like, at a bunch of conventions, we do do events like that. Um, we have our big end-of-year fundraiser, of course. That's our real big thing. We release new products in the Tinker's Packs and have stores or sales in – I'm sorry. It's not called the Tinker's Packs anymore. Um, um, we have sales, and there's new products there with regularity. Um, but all of those things, you would get much more timely – notifications about if you signed up for the newsletter and and don't worry they're not going to hassle you like three times a week it's it's pretty much a once a month thing yeah cool um before we move on so the the website does a pretty good job of, of explaining how everything works and what the charities are and, and heifer international um but i'm just curious what does it that charity mean to you like why why is it that one that you've decided to single out? Well, we worked, we do work with a couple of different charities. Um, you know, uh, Heifer International is our, our main one that we support. Um, and, and the vast majority of, of the millions of dollars we've raised over the years goes to Heifer. Um, but we've also done fundraisers for Mercy Corps, 
mm-hmm. um, which is again a top tier charity um, that um, helps with like the Syrian refugees. Um, Mercy Corps um, deals with disaster relief that also builds a strong infrastructure. Um, we did a fundraiser for Puerto Rico um, and then got the money to Mercy Corps. Um, we did that last year um, so that Mercy Corps, again, they've got boots on the ground, they've got a good infrastructure and they could get in there and help quick. Yeah. Um, we've worked with um, First Book, which is just here in the US, but they get books into the hands of kids who have never owned a book before, mm-hmm. which I don't know about you guys, but just yeah. saying that sentence. That's exactly. Yeah, makes Painful. me want to like flip over a table and cry uncontrollably. <laughs> um, so we we've worked with multiple charities. World, um, Heifer International, though, is very close to my heart because um, I think that geeks are a little more prone to certain types of behavior, um, and one of those types of behavior is specifically like systems optimization. Okay. Uh, Cause uh, I can see you. You're like, you're like, okay, take me on this ride. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and here's, here's the example I've used before. Um, you know, cancer is fucking awful. I mean, we can all, there's we can no all agree on that. No, no, no need to vote on that one. Right. Right. And so like I could do a fundraiser to raise money to, do cancer research, you know, and we raise, you know, a ton of money, $400,000. And that $400,000 would allow a cancer research lab fully staffed to operate for three and a half weeks. Yeah. You know, or I can back a charity like Heifer International because here's the thing, they have figured out, like, we, we don't know how to cure cancer. Mm-hmm. We know how to cure hunger, right. actually. <laughs> we figured that out a long time ago. <laughs> and there's still, some, there's still some optimizations to be had. But Heifer is like, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not being facetious here because if I were being facetious, I would say, you just take food and you put it in people. That's actually the wrong way to do it. Because, and that's why I like heifer is, you know, and that's why I would always be filled with this hopelessness. You're up late at night, you're watching some garbage television, and then a commercial would come on. And boy, I'm dating myself by saying this because I realize in the last 10 years, I have not watched a commercial. Um, <laughs> But everyone, come with yes. me in my Wayback Machine. <laughs> and, you, um, and you would watch this and it would, there'd be this ad and it would say, for the price of a cup of coffee, you yeah. can feel, feed this starving child. And part of I look at that and I'd go, I am such a fat American bastard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, oh, how, like 70 cents a day, I could feed this child. But then I'm like, but even so, because, again, I'm a forward thinker, I'm a planner, I'm a system optimizer, I'm a problem solver, part of me goes, am I going to give this person 70 cents a day for, for goddamn ever? That's like, 
That's like, I mean, it, and the thing is, it's like I need that. They need that food, food every day because, yes, that's super important. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to I'm going to do this. And then what if in two years I I need that money back? Yeah, I'm effectively then I'm starving this child. <laughs> but what Heifer International does is they promote education and food sustainability and so what they do is they go in they give people education tools material so that they can have control of their own food supply and that means on the simplest level the one that anyone can understand you give somebody a flock of chickens Mm -hmm. they make eggs you eat those eggs or you eat some of the eggs and then the other eggs turn into more chickens mm-hmm. or you sell some of the eggs. So suddenly it's like giving somebody a magical machine which produces either money, food or more machines or more machines. Like yeah. it, it's self-replicating independent business that also gives protein to your hungry children. Yeah. You know, and – there's a lot of us, I think, at various points in our lives have kind of gotten backed up against a wall where it's like, oh, no, I just there's no money to fix the car. Mm-hmm. Oh, I blew a tire. Where am I going to get that hundred and twenty bucks? Or like, God forbid you get sick. Right. Mm-hmm. What Heifer International goes in and they give somebody a flock of chickens and then they work at these chickens, they get more and more chickens. And then if something gets bad, you know what you do? You can not just sell eggs to get income, you can sell your chickens. Oh no, we need medicine? I'm gonna sell six chickens. Yeah. And yeah, like the business gets a little dinged, but it beats the hell out of not having medicine. Right. Mm-hmm. Because again, they might not have a credit card. And if they had a credit card, it'd be useless in this world. It's so hard for those of us who live in the world we live in, where you say are listening to a podcast, (laughs) to understand that like 60% of the world's population cooks dinner over an open fire. Yeah. Like you go out, you get the wood, you light that fire, and you cook food over it. And this is a huge job of work. So... What the reason I like heifer is if I raise a hundred and twenty dollars, a family out there gets a goat, the training to to deal with the goat. They teach you how to build a pen, they teach you how to graze it, or they teach you about zero graze pasturing or or zero pasture like livestock management where you actually have a garden plot that you raise the food that you feed the goat. The goat provides milk. The milk is calcium and protein for your kids. You sell the milk. The goat has babies. And then there's there's all these stories out there. There's a, there's a bunch of great videos. And there's a woman who's like, I used to have to beg to buy my children soap. Mm. You know? And like, because we just didn't have money for it. Then she's like, Heifer gave me a goat. And now you see her. She's feeding a dozen goats, 15 goats. Now she's like, now I'm sending my granddaughter to school with this money. Now mm-hmm. if something 
if we really need something, I sell a goat. And the thing is, somebody else is super happy to buy that goat, and then they have a small business. Everyone in the community suddenly has access to like better, fresher food. Everyone wins. No, there's no downside to this. It's not a zero sum game. And so, you know, people are quite literally alive these days. Thousands and tens of thousands of people right now have food for their children. Their children had money for school because of world builders. Mm. Because geeks have given us money. We have passed it along to Heifer International. And now their lives are better forever. Mm. I That's why I back Heifer International. I hear the passion in your voice. For, I hear, pretty good reason. Yeah, <laughs> I hear the passion in your in your answer. Um, but I also hear like you know when you say like oh you don't want to be bogged down with the logistics of the business and of packing things up in order to get that money. You know the, the the things you need to do in order to entice people to give the money so you can make that that change. Um, is there is there part of you like maybe during these fundraisers or during these times when you see the money coming in and you you can really see the good happening that thinks maybe this is what I should really be doing like what what am I doing writing words and, and making up stories you know like wh- maybe this is is what I really should be doing because I have a knack for it it's definitely it's it's what I do at the end of the year yeah um and a big part of what I've been trying to do in terms of my life in general is, you know, I, oh, things were so easy when I was like a broke, useless college student. <laughs> because like, you, ha- I had a couple of options and it was like, where do I, you know, where do I eat dinner? Mm. What do I do tonight? Do I watch a movie or do I play a game? Do I hang out with my friends or do I work on my useless unpublished fantasy monstrosity? <laughs> and with only a few choices, it was easy to make those choices and I, I didn't have a lot of opportunities. So proportionately, I could take advantage of almost every opportunity that presented itself. Yeah. Now, I have so many opportunities to do things yeah, that it wrecks my life on a daily basis because I haven't had the I haven't developed the skill set of saying no because why would I need that as a useless broke college student? Mm-hmm. So you know I I haven't always made the best decisions over the last couple of years um, in terms of where to put my time and energy. One of the things that I'm working for with world builders is like. How can we best use my time so that I do the most good for the charity, but I still have time to do the other things that I really want to do that are good and like healthy for me, like spending time with my kids, Mm -hmm. um, like watching a show with friends sometimes. Um, and you know, actually, you're the first person to ask me the question in that frame. Like, maybe you shouldn't be doing this other stuff. Maybe just do charity. Um, a lot of other people have come to me and they go, hey, get your charity deal. Even my dad was one of them. Yeah. And he's like, 
why don't you just write your books, mm. make your money, and then give that money to charity like later, yeah. like like in you know it's when you're when you're getting ready to die. And I think of that as like the Carnegie model, you <laughs> mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, Carnegie was an asshole his whole life. Yeah. You know, and then he's like, uh, libraries. Uh, and then he died, you know? <laughs> and, like, don't get me wrong, Carnegie's ghost. I'm really glad for the libraries. That is a, that's, you did a lot of good for the world. But, like, that's kind of a shitty way to think about yeah. existing in the world. Like, if you want to make the world a better place, you probably shouldn't wait until you're 60 years old to start. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you should like not kill your employees or or bust labor unions or like like be a fucking corporate monster every day of your life and then suddenly have a conversion experience and leave your money in a foundation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I'm trying to thread that needle between like, you know, like doing good stuff with my money, go- doing good stuff with this little soapbox that I've, I have, um, while also like being a little bit fiscally responsible and looking out. So my kids can go to college, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but no, I'm again, the Carnegie model is what people look towards as some shining beacon of hope. Like I'm going to get all the candy and then eventually I'll give some of it back to the people. And I'm like, no, that's not how an ecosystem works. That's not sustainable. Yeah. It's you're living, um, you're living your whole life for yourself. You're getting what you're getting, looking out for number one. You're doing what's good for you, first of all. And then at the very end, giving back a fraction of, of what you got. It's the, it's the billion, it's the cha- philanthropist billionaire model. Yeah. Is like, here's the secret. Odds are, if you are a billionaire, you know, what you have already been doing, and again, there are exceptions to this rule, but like, you know, uh, who, what's the, how do you pronounce the guy's name who owns Amazon? Bezos? Jeff yeah. Bezos? Yeah. It's like, yeah, he's got like a bajillion T dollars. Yeah. You know, you can do charity with that and look like a big, impressive philanthropist man. Or how about you take care of your own fucking house and give yep. your employees health insurance? Yep. And like let them own homes and like like take your knee off their throat so that they can relax and live good goddamn lives. Make like one million less off of your eleven billion dollars and you know, everyone else will be happy. Right. You know, it's like you don't you wouldn't need to go out and fix shit in the world if your company wasn't like pissing directly into the eyes of humanity you know that's oh fuck somebody's gonna but how do you really feel (laughs) (laughs) you know and and let me say that like amazon is is, does not have a great track record they're not but they're by no means the worst i'm picking amazon because um you know he's been a little bit in the news lately um and you know but similarly I, but I will also say Amazon's better than the folks that run Walmart. Mm-hmm. You know, like talk about a big sack of assholes. Like they are are predating on the American 
everything. Like like they they are gaming the system so amazingly that like you know uh well, the, the people that run Walmart have all this money and all of the employees at Walmart are like subsidized by the government. Um you know and um it's it's so galling but at least some billionaires do at least do some charity whereas the Walmart people they don't give a damn at all. They don't even pretend to be good. Yeah. Yeah. Let me see. What other what other extremely <laughs> powerful people can I can I slander here in this? That's okay. They don't um, listen, they don't listen to this show, so it's okay. That's, that's fair, you got anything to say, Elon Musk? I mean, they don't listen. Yeah, so it's okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, I didn't realize that Elon Musk was was crazy. Yeah. Is he? If you were a please. billionaire, I think you have to be more than a little bit crazy to have gotten there. Well, there's eccentric and then there's batshit. And (laughs) some of these guys have crossed the line like openly. And I, I'm listening to them and watching them and, and I say guys, and I actually do mean men in this case. No, that's totally fair. That's fair. Just lately. lately. Yes. It's well, yeah, the women go and build creepy houses with rooms (laughs) that go nowhere with their money. At least they didn't. Yeah. Anyway, actually, she did harm some people, but you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, I'm watching people and you get into these conversations about, well, maybe you just social media is bad and you should pull back. Right. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I am very glad that I know who the batshits are. Yeah, I'm glad they're showing their true colors. They get so complacent and they think it's just a conversation with friends. The whole world's watching and I am paying attention. And now, I, I would like to say, and and, and I, I'm totally I'm, I'm on board with you. And I would like to and, and I was just guilty of something that I'd like to sort of roll back a little bit because I was like, I didn't realize that a lot because when Musk, he open sourced all of the patents from mm-hmm. Tesla. Mm-hmm. And he did that, and I'm like, good on you. That is amazingly forward thinking. And he's legitimately, I think, trying to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't suddenly go away because he also, and like, this is news to me. I didn't know that he busted up labor union stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he, and then he did. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. How, how do you know that open sourcing your patents is good and you do it, which is brave and like one of the most non-corporate things I've ever experienced. And then you actively go anti-union. I'm like, oh no. Mm-hmm. The, the key is, and this is something it's very easy to do and it's very popular these days. We want people to be simple. Or rather, we want to, we want our lives to be easy. And so you want to have a good guy column and a bad guy column. Right. And so, you know, the problem is everybody is really complex. And your favorite person in the world, the you know, your best friend, your partner, your significant other probably has an opinion or a lifestyle choice that viewed in isolation, you would say, Hey, there's a person that does X and you would be like, they are the devil and they should go to jail forever. (laughs) But, and then you're like, Oh, but it's, it's, 
it's Chad, and you're like, oh, well, now, Chad isn't a bad person. It's just that that one thing we really disagree about. You know, mm-hmm. it's about um, it's it's about abortion. It's about the nature of the tripartite soul. It's about cubism. Mm-hmm. You know, like whatever your <laughs> hot button issue is. Um, you know, but the truth is, it's really it takes a lot of brain power to view people complexly and try to understand them as a gestalt. Whereas what we want to do to save wattage is to say, oh, good guys, bad guys, them and us. And the truth is, like, Musk has done some good stuff and some shitty stuff. And it takes a lot of work to try to do the advanced calculus to figure out how you feel about him. Yeah. Don't don't bring integers in this or derivatives. I I have not missed those. Um, But one of the things I might say is that I, I just did it with like the Walmart people or with Bezos or, or whatever. Is that how you pronounce his, his name? Bezos? I always said Bezos, but I'm not sure Bezos. if that's correct. You know, the truth is like the, each of these people have done some good things. Mm-hmm. Um, but doing good things doesn't excuse you from being an asshole. Right. And being an asshole occasionally doesn't mean that you are not in, maybe even in the majority of your life, a really good person. And that is a super unpopular opinion these days. But I just like to voice it. No, and you're absolutely right. And I think for you know everything that everybody says about social media, Twitter and Facebook, you know, they have, there are a lot of pros, a lot of cons, a lot of evils, but I think that primarily what they have succeeded in doing is exactly that. They've stripped away all the complexity um, and and made us expect other people to be one side of the fence or the other, good or yeah. bad. You know, they're 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 playing for my team or they're not, and I, there's no middle ground. And yeah, I, and I mean, I'm sure as somebody in the public eye, as somebody who has fans and a fan base. Um, you probably see that more than most. You probably see fans who, if you give them what they want, they love you and they think that you're golden and God. But if they do something that, if you do something that they maybe don't agree with or you don't do something <laughs> fast enough or you don't do something on, you know, like you don't, you know, you don't write this word instead of that word. Like suddenly they like, they just like, they just turn, you know? And, and I don't understand how we've gotten to that place. I, I want to, and not to be all fucking tinfoil hat here, but <laughs> do it. <laughs> the truth, the truth is, when we fight amongst ourselves, you, you know, like uh, wartime economies are exceptionally vulnerable to exploitation. Mm-hmm. You know, like Rhett Butler, war profiteer. You know, like everybody knows that Um, military industrial complex like came came about for very specific reasons, because like like, oh, no, everything's on fire. We got it. Oh, this is a bad idea to do it this way. Oh, but we we just got to because. And I think. You know, follow the money who benefits from all of not all of humanity, because. You know, here's a shocker, like 15 percent 
of Americans are on Twitter. <laughs> you know, it is not the world. Yeah. So loud though. So, it's so loud. It's, so loud. <laughs> it's only oh, it's it's only it's it's so interesting to hear you use the word loud because it literally makes no noise. <laughs> you know, you can choose to have it literally make a noise on your phone. It can beep at you, <laughs> but that's you actually making it be loud. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm guilty of this as well. I'm not pointing at you particularly, but like we choose to do this. And so suddenly it's like, oh, maybe we don't need to be at war with the Russians anymore to like force, you know, to like make certain political agendas move forward and to create opportunities for certain industries and they can exploit and make money. You know, instead, it's like, let's have all of the, the people with disposable incomes and who are technically savvy um, and who are on Twitter and on the internet just endlessly shit in each other's cereal and be furious and 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 bickering at each other and then then follow the money like who is making hay you know and it's like you know it's it's a bunch of people that if our lives were peaceful and calm and we were all merely well informed <laughs> And we had extra time on our hands because we weren't wasting two hours on Twitter every day. Oh God! Imagine, imagine what the world be like if if everyone was peaceful, calm, had two extra hours in the day, and they were perfectly well informed. What would that world be like? It would be wonderful. But... I can't imagine it. Honestly, <laughs> I, I can't even. I mean, it would be. It would quite honestly, it would be like that nostalgic, perfect view of all of our childhoods. You know, before the internet, before Twitter, before computers, you know, when we walked uphill both ways to school and we just rode our bikes around until the, the sun went down, you know, like the world wasn't perfect, but in our heads, that was the perfect world, you know, like for me, that was the 80s, you know, when like the Goonies, that, that life, when I was riding around the neighborhood on my bike and we would just meet up friends with the playground and, you know, like that, that is what we're looking back on and saying like, wouldn't it be great? It didn't exist. But still, wouldn't it be great? You know, in some, and you're right, it didn't exist. It's a fictional view of the world in the same way that, like, the 50s weren't actually like right. Leave It to Beaver. Yeah. However, if we dismiss it as being purely fictional, we ignore what really did exist. Like, back in the day, there was actually news. Hmm. That was news. You know, there was real news. Like journalism was a thing <laughs> that actually existed. And there was, you know, and like if like imagine if back in the day, you know, somebody held up something in the New York Times and said, this is fake. They would have been like laughed off the stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But. So, so you know, let me ask you a question then, because another thing that Twitter especially has been called out on is, is decreasing our collective um, uh, attention span. You know, like we can't pay attention for more than three sentences or a five second soundbite. But the flip side of that is you write stories that are thousands of pages long and people are clamoring for them. So how do you how do you 
you know, find, like, how do you equal those two out? Like, how do, how can we have both? Well, the thing is, people say dumb shit all the time. So when they say people's attention spans are blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and it's like, um, show me the math. Yeah. You know? But I think that's part of, you know, in, there used to be news. There used to be investigative journalism. And you, you, we used to have these articles, like long-form journalism, you know, that has it's not, it hasn't gone away. Because if you look for it, you can still find it. But it's far from the norm. It, it is it is certainly fallen out of fashion mm-hmm. um, to my to my endless dismay. Um, now, and I say that as somebody is like, am I going to read a 1500 word article? Um, but <laughs> <Maybe> not. <laughs> but like, here's the thing. There's a lot of things that people believe are true and they simply are not true. Mm-hmm. There's there's your there's my uh if 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 you're going to remember one thing that I say here, I'm going to say that. There's a lot of things that people believe are true that simply are not true. There's a lot of things that you personally, philosophically believe are true and they are not true. And um if you have your eye and that can be a political thing, that can be a religious thing, it can be a philosophical thing, it can be a scientific thing. Now here's the thing, if you are a real scientist, and very few people are, um, most people at best are engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, a true scientist realizes that you know, science and philosophy live on the emberant edge of expanding knowledge. It's that, it's that little piece of burning fire at the edge of a newspaper, that is science. Um, if you're an engineer, that's different. You know, then you are doing scientific things. Mm-hmm. You, but but if, like to call that science um, is to say that when I follow a recipe, I am doing science. Right, right. Um, Real science and real philosophy is exploring what is real. I mean, I, to get like, to go like, let's go, fuck it, let's go all in. This is the difference between namas and phusis. Phusis is physics. It's the big, it's the laws of the world. Namas is the laws of man. Phusis, the, the, the old dead Greeks had this figured out 2,000 years ago. Um, that's where we get the word physics is from phusis. Mm-hmm. Um um, what the hell am I talking about? Where was I going with this? <laughs> oh, yeah, you got a Twitter notification. Like, it popped up right Squirrel. on my screen, and I'm like, Squirrel. hold on, shit, I've got to look at this real quick. Um, you asked me... I asked you, how can you reconcile the idea that we have yeah, shortening yeah. attention okay. spans, but yet you write thousands of words? Yep, I got it. Or pages. So... There's a bunch of these things that you believe are true, either because you pick them up at some point um, or because you believe them at some point, and that's cool. Everyone's got to do that. There's got to be a, a set of things that you believe. That's how we live day to day. You wake up in the morning and you're like, you know, when I go into the fridge, there will be milk there because I left it there. Pretty sure, ninety nine point nine percent sure. Five nines fine, right. sure on the milk in the fridge. Is the milk still good? Ooh, I'm three nines fine on that. <laughs> you know, little more uncertainty there, and then you're like. You know, you get down to like, can I, you know, can I successfully make pancakes? Ooh, 95% sure. Um, 
you know, I've I've met with success in the past, but it is by no means pure certainty. Um, but and that's I, I use pancakes and, and milk and whatever as a silly example, but if you bring that sort of certainty into other elements and other areas of your life, like how we think about knowledge, truth, people, beauty, relationships, and love, stuff like that. The stuff that it's really not fashionable to talk about these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's that's where my heart is. Um, you realize that the only reason people think these things is because we've all just sort of assumed it to be true. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know you need to drink eight glasses of water a day, right? You're going to tell me that's not true. Oh, it's super not true. <laughs> There is absolutely, like, everyone repeats it. Yeah. But there's actually a bunch of scientific articles done saying, by the way, we looked through the literature. No one has studied this. And what studies have been done in no way support this eight glasses of water bullshit. It's like one guy started saying it and everybody started. It's, that's, but that's Twitter. That's how Twitter works. Like, that's the entire point of Twitter. It's the, it's how the human mind works, actually. And Twitter interacts with that part of our mind in one of the least productive ways possible. Um, as a matter of fact, we should say it the other way, Twitter interacts with that part of our mind in a way that is extremely detrimental to the advancement of human knowledge <laughs> and people's mental health and well-being. For example, yes. you know that you need certain things in a story, or rather, I know this, right? Because I'm a writer, you know? And I've thought about this a lot and I've actually taken classes and I've talked with other writers. And while I by no means pursued this in an academic sense, I'm not an idiot and there's certain consensus about needing things like uh, plot, uh, <laughs> tension, you know, uh, character. And like some people who are effectively literary philosophers or scientists like William Burroughs was like, but what if no story or plot or tension? And then, and then he's like, but here's a book called Naked Lunch. And people are like, oh, I, I don't know if it's a book at all, actually. <laughs> but for example, and I'm just going to use this because it's, it's very close to home and it gives me a chance to talk about my kids, which I haven't done yet. Um, I... We hang out with my kids and we tell stories. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so much a part of interacting with your kids or with me, with my kids. I don't yeah. know about your experience. Yeah. Hanging out with my boys. Um, and we told the story of the big bad wolf. And it's great. I mean, it. Like, they love it. They eat it up because there's and you huff and you puff and you blow the house down. Little pig. There's repetition. There's all these things. And so we're going through and we're telling this story. And, of course, if you have kids, you know, they always want to hear it again. Mm-hmm. Again, again, again. Now, I always pushed back on that. Every time a kid asked me to read like a picture book again, I read it different, Mm -hmm. you know, or I'll read it from the back to the front and make up a different story. I'll read the words different. I'll change things for one, because I'm contrary for two, because I'm bored easily. And for three, because 
honestly, I'm pushing back against the concept of positivity. You know, like there is one true story and all other stories are not true. I'm, you know, it's like, how about let's have a little variety here. And plus, I don't want to read this, this picture book that was 16 pages, 18 times exactly the same way. <laughs> I don't want to get trapped there. So we're doing Little Pig, Little Pig, Let Me In. And then he says, can you tell the story? Can you, you do it again. Tell me again. But tell me the story of the big nice wolf. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. And this child is two years old. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, but I want a nice wolf. And what was he saying? Now, this child has not been, if I was feeling charitable, I would say informed by the culture. But instead, what I will say is the truth, which poisoned. This child has not been poisoned, has not absorbed through osmosis, like the expectation of violence, the expectation of all these things. Because what what do you need in a story? Plot tension, conflict. This child was saying to me, oh, no, 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 no. Can you just tell me a story with a nice wolf? Mm -hmm. And what he wasn't saying, but was very strongly implied, is like, Jesus, Dad. Why are you telling me the story? (laughs) Why the fuck does this wolf get killed? Why is he eating people? (laughs) This is is sick. This makes me uncomfortable. These pigs are like sentient creatures that walk, talk, plant. (laughs) Somebody knocks down your fucking house and eats you? That's shitty, Dad. I don't want to hear that story anymore. How about you do all the parts I love? Like, I like that huffing and puffing. The blowing the house down, cool special effects, A+. plus. <laughs> um, but then how about nobody dies? <laughs> and how about nobody is an asshole in this story? And so what my child did is he's, he actually, he said to me, you know, maybe you don't need tension and conflict as much as you think. Yeah. And I was able to hear this because I had come to this realization myself writing and revising these books for ages that you know people will sit still for a good story even if it is not a constant car chase yeah even if in fact there is no car chase at all and there is no sword fight there is nothing that blow okay one thing blows up and name you know <laughs> okay maybe two things one and a half things blows up and name it <laughs> But it turns out people love stories not for conflict. People love stories not because of tension. People actually are way smarter than is generally assumed. And if you write a book as if they are smart, they will enjoy it way more than if you pander to them a bunch. Mm. Because... If you ever read a book and it repeats itself constantly, the assumption that that author has made is that you weren't paying attention. You weren't paying attention or you've forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I very early on when I was writing Name of the Wind decided and I'm like, oh, my reader is smart. Mm-hmm. That means I can use more words than normal and I'll trust either they will pick it up through context, be comfortable with a little bit of ambiguity or open a dictionary. 
And so I'm like, I'm like, great. I'll use not all my words, but you know, my best words, right. my good words. Um, and if they don't know what a counterpoint is, then you know. And, and actually, this is something a very specific comment somebody made first page of Name of the Wind. Um, I use the word alloy and counterpoint both in a sentence, in the same sentence. Mm -hmm. And somebody made a very fair comment and said, hey, um, this is, these are two kind of specific words dealing with two very vastly different areas of expertise. And somebody who knows what an alloy is, is probably not, you know, might has, there's a decent chance they might not know what a counterpoint is. And so your odds are high that somebody that a lot of people are going to be a little bit lost here. And I went, huh, that's really fair. I'm writing for the people that can roll with this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I made that decision right there. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to write a story for people who are really pretty reasonably intelligent. I'm going to respect their intelligence, not repeat myself a lot. Um, not, over explain everything to them not assume that they constantly need an explosion to hold their attention and let's see if we can do that and generally speaking people have enjoyed it pretty well i would say so yeah, yeah. yeah. i am so sorry that i've been i had a big coffee before i sat, <laughs> sat down here, and i have spoken like six thousand straight words at you without letting you get a word in edgewise we're not this. I mean, you're the reason of, for this show. Like, I, then nobody's comes here to listen to me talk. I'm just, co I'm just color commentary. So don't worry about me. And I haven't had to add much color. You're doing great. It's actually been really nice. Like when I say something and you laugh, I'm like, yeah, I stuck that one. That, that was. I got to be funny there. There's that, and my laugh just like cuts through every word somebody says. I have a very, very loud laugh. Um, but yeah, you probably didn't notice my facial expression. But when you were saying that there's probably a large number of people who don't know what those two words mean, I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. I know what they both mean. <laughs> but, you know. Well, and that was my that was my thought is like, really, there's people shocked who wouldn't know both alloy. And it's like, that is not a high bar. I am absolutely <laughs> expecting my readers to clear that bar. But if yeah. they, and or, even or if they fix it, exactly, if exactly. Even it. if they don't know one of the words or both the words, they know how to find out what the meaning is, you know, like yep. dictionaries are not a new invention. Google is not really a brand new thing. <laughs> yep. I remember years ago, gosh, this was quite a few years ago. Um, but I loaned a book um, to a, a, a old coworker, not a coworker any longer. Um, and she brought it back to me just a few days later. And she was like, I only got like two chapters in. She's like, cause every page I had to stop and look these words up. And she is a very sharp woman. And it's, it's one of those things where I can kind of harken back to something you said before. People are very complex. She is just brilliant at problem solving and um, organization and all those things. And I'd never picked up over the years that she just didn't have as big or robust a vocabulary as I have. And, but we're, we were a good counterpoint to each other, right? Like, like she was better at, at some parts of the job and I was better at others. But I, that was the first point where I realized that, you know, maybe not everybody likes to read books with big words. 
Right. I, okay. And, and, and I will also say, again, I'm, if I don't contradict myself at least four times in any sort of com, uh, conversation, um, when I say, like, oh, I can use all my best words, I mean, we've, we've also all read books where it's like, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> oh, sweet summer child, you are trying yeah. so hard. Um, Sat down put, to write with the thesaurus right next to him. Oh, yeah. put that put that away. <laughs> put that away. Uh, Robert Bly once said, he says, if you understood, I, I think this is, this is a paraphrase, of, uh, but I think he said, if you understood 25 words perfectly, you could still write poetry. Hmm. Um, and it's true. It's not, not the word it's how it's how you use it yeah that sound i made it dirty um <laughs> but it's not how big your word is it's how you use it not how big your vocabulary is it's it's the motion in the ocean and and but it's true like read robert frost like dude had mastery of the language his meter is so amazing it's invisible which is so much harder to do than looking impressive T.S. Eliot had to have had like a tiny, tiny dick because he was trying so hard, <laughs> so hard to impress you. It's like, it's like, oh, here's my Latin and Greek and a hundred footnotes. And I'm like, and I'm like, I'm like, dude, it was T.S. Eliot. Was that a man or a woman? I don't know, honestly. Um, man. Okay, good. Yeah, nobody reads poetry for the footnotes. <laughs> Well, if, if you read T.S. Eliot, you do. Right. Uh, okay, I don't know anybody reads T.S. Eliot for that very that reason. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> You're College right. flashbacks here. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, see, there's there's a great quote. Uh, T.S. Eliot had a tiny dick. Somebody's going to put that on Twitter. <laughs> that, oh, that's my pull quote for this episode right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's the title of the episode. Uh, Matt Rothfuss talks about charity. Also, T.S. Eliot's tiny. <laughs> I am so sorry, guys. I, uh, this is—I don't know what you were expecting, but I'm guessing you're not getting it here. The the best episodes I've ever done, the best interviews. Th I'm coming up on 200. I've not. This is not my first time doing this, but the best conversations go in the most unexpected places. And this this ranks up there. So there, went, bravo, it went sir. Right into T.S. Eliot's pants. We appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I have about 20 unasked questions, so um, we're going to have to have you back because I know that we've, we're run out of your time. Well, well, how about this? Because, like, you you asked me a question. I'm like, good question. How about I talk for 25 minutes? <laughs> so hit me with a few of those questions. A few. Definitely have me back in the future. But hit me with a few, and I will attempt to be marginally less verbose. Uh, please, you don't need to, to... You can be as verbose as you want. That's why you're here. <laughs> One thing related to what you said, though, I did want to ask before we let you go, though. You were talking about the, the Three Little Pigs and making up the stories and then telling it differently for each time through. I'm assuming that's what led to Princess and Mr. Wiffle. Nope. Really? I wrote that long before I had kids. Really? Yep. Okay. Because that book, as you know, it subverts all expectations of what you think it's going to be. How many, how many frustrated parents have reached out to you just like angry, like, how could you do this to my story time with my children? <laughs> I have actually none that I know of. There might be 
I don't read all the fan mail anymore. Uh There might be a a specific folder in fan mail for like the angry. um, (laughs) But, you know, we put a sticker on the front of it that specific specifically says this shit is not for kids. (laughs) Um, And it's not my fault that it looks like a Newberry award medallion sure sure it isn't <laughs> of it's, course not <laughs> it's only yeah it's actually is it, i totally did that um <laughs> um but no i and, and the truth is i am extraordinarily contrary um i don't think i'm i actually have um like oppositional defiant disorder mm. but i'm probably on that road um and so, like, if you read Name of the Wind, honestly, so much of it is pushback against certain things that are very common in fantasy. Um, uh, I, uh, I was, I, I was talking with Peter Beagle the other day. That's mm-hmm. the closest I'll ever get to a name drop. Um, and one of the first conventions I ever went to, he was on a panel talking about the Last Unicorn, which. Again, my favorite book, um, one of the, you know, just just an amazing cornerstone of all fantasy literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, and he's on this panel, and I'm like, I get to hear Peter Beagle talk. And he's like, oh, it was awful to write. <laughs> he's like, oh, was, I'm so glad. It's it so hard to write. It's so awful. And, and if that breaks your heart a little bit, because you kind of want it to be a magical experience for him. Like it's a magical experience right. reading. But what he said is he goes, the problem of course, is that it was a fairy tale that was satirizing fairy tales. Right. And he said that and I went, Oh, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> that's what the name of the wind is. I go, mm-hmm. this is heroic fantasy that is satirizing or commenting upon or Mm -hmm. which is also a reaction to the genre of heroic fantasy. And that's sort of what I do. It's like the thought of me writing a book where like you understand everything that's going on as you read it or that you can predict everything that's going to happen is so abhorrent to me or the thought of, you're reading a book of mine and you're like, yeah, 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 I know. I, I've heard, I've heard this all before. It's so, it's like, it's so distasteful to me. It's sort of like, um, there's an old joke in a Douglas Adam book called uh, Dirk Gently. Oh yeah, of course. Where somebody comes up to him and she goes, oh, what do you do? And he goes, well, I'm a private detective. And she goes, and she's quiet, and she goes, ah, my friend plays the tuba. And he goes, and he goes, I beg your pardon? And he goes, and she goes, well, my friend plays the tuba, and whenever anyone finds out or sees him with the tuba, they say the same thing to him, which is, I bet you wish you'd picked up the piccolo. (laughs) (laughs) and everybody says that and everyone thinks it's really funny and original but it's not they have no way of knowing that 
mm-hmm. but it, it makes this person's life a hell. And so she said, she goes, I was trying to think what everyone must say to you when you say you're a private investigator. And he goes, oh, they don't say anything. They just look kind of uncomfortable and dodgy like you did. And she's mm. like, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because she was trying to find a way to avoid doing the done thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm always trying to find a way to avoid doing the done thing. Um, while hopefully at the same time giving you the experience of comfort and familiarity that is pleasant in a story. You know, I don't, I can't write the Lord of the Rings again because somebody already did it and it was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I did it again, it would just be like a bad Xerox or a Xerox of a Xerox. But I want you to feel the way that I felt reading Lord of the Rings yeah. while at the same time, hopefully pushing back and surprising you. Um, which for me was part of the experience of reading Lord of the Rings was being surprised because I read it early. Um, also, I would like to point out that I just told a story about a story in which somebody told a story. That's and now That's, you're listening to a podcast. So we're five deep people. This is this is the Inception episode. I mean, we're yeah. not just this. That's what we are. Um, I didn't even quite realize that until you just said that. That was a lot of stories within stories. That's what that's what I'm good at. That's, that's what my, you're good yeah. at. That's it. Um, two years ago, two years ago, two years ago, uh, I was on the Joko cruise. You were there, and one of the panels that you were on was the writing implosions panel. It was with Scalzi and Chelsea Kane and Maureen Johnson, I think. Um, and basically, what this was about for those of you listening, it was the difficulties that writers have with sometimes just writing just getting the words on the page and how you move past that how you deal with that as an audience member just watching this conversation among you uh it seemed to be like it was kind of therapeutic for you guys like to just sort of say like hey yeah like we don't have golden fingers like i don't just sit down and 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 finished final products roll off onto the computer screen like this is a lot of work and sometimes i just really kind of don't want to do it how important are those conversations among creative people and how rare, I guess, is the bigger question. How rare are they? Oh, I think every profession, you know, colleagues get together and kvetch. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, podcasters. And the thing is, a lot of that kvetching you can only do with other people in your profession. Because, like, there's stuff that you guys have to deal with that, like, I simply can't get. You know, um, because I have only occasionally done the podcasting and, and most of the real meat of it has been behind the scenes. Um, similarly, like writers get together and they're like, ugh, yeah. you know, and, and we talk that language. Twins speak to each other. That wouldn't make any sense to anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, what I very specifically try to do is push back against something that I call uh, or that I consider in my own head the myth of the author. Um, that is like sort of the, the the cultural belief that a writer is like a conduit to the divine. Like the muse speaks to us and we are inspired to blah, blah, blah. Um, and I mean, it's a great story. It's very appealing. 
but I don't think it's healthy for people consuming the art or producing the art to buy into that particular thing. Um, because like it, it means you think the wrong way about things. And if you're thinking the wrong way about things, you can't act well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, you can either consider that a callback to Confucianism or cognitive behavioral therapy, depending on your, your particular philosophical bent. Um, you know, Confucius talked about, uh, uh, first you have to have right thought and only then can you have right action. You can do the right thing, but if you don't have right thought underneath it, it's, it's not actually the right thing to do. Right. Um, and cognitive behavioral therapy is very like kind of uncannily similar Um, you know, for example, people talk about writer's block all the time as if it were real and because of, and it's simply not, Mm -hmm. you know, the truth is it is simply hard to write sometimes the same as any other professional or creative endeavor. But if a plumber (laughs) called in and just not feeling it today. <laughs> yeah, I said, oh, oh, Gregory, my muse does not speak to me today. I fear I cannot plumb. And they're like, we've got a contract. Like, you know, the, the, the Johnson, like, the, the, the apartment building is going up and, like, we're behind because, you know, Joe broke his leg. And he's like, oh, but my muse is not speaking to me of the plumb line <laughs> and the tight seal today. I fear that it will not be my best plumbing. And it's like, are you drunk? Get <laughs> in here or I will fire you. Um, it would be ridiculous. Nevertheless, um, you know, people will be like, you say writer's block and people are like, oh, ooh, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's like you've just said, it's like you've just said, I have meningitis, you know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, fuck, writer's block? Do you need, do you get some amoxicillin for that? <laughs> but it's not a thing. It's not a thing. But here's the thing. Here is the thing. And this is, this is what I talk about all the time. If, if Greg, I want to give him the same thing. Oh, Gregory. <laughs> I broke my fucking arm the other day. I cannot plumb. He's like, oh, shit. Yeah, you're right. You super can't. Stay home. Sorry. Call me when your arm in broke. And because, like, you do plumbing with your hands, and if they aren't working, if your body doesn't work right, you cannot do the plumb. But you write with your head. And so like I, you could break your leg and then still write. Mm-hmm. But if say like your dog has fucking died, that's in your head. If your relationship is a mess, if you know, you have a mood disorder, which statistically like, like six to 10 times more, you are more likely to have if you are a writer, um, like they, they have, they've done the math on that. Um, that was a priority. They had to figure that one out. <laughs> right. Um, you know, if you have either diagnosed or undiagnosed depression 
or like any of the myriad host of of things that can legit chemically go wrong in your brain um or like or it's just like your life is shitty or your dad is sick or like maybe the republic is crumbling and there's an autocrat in power like <laughs> hypothetically does, you just spitball on that just, one right I'm just spitballing yeah, yeah, things yeah. that could potentially sure. really fuck up your process as a creative <laughs> Because, and again, here's the thing, odds are if you're a writer of a certain sort, you have a high degree of empathy, and so some things are going to hit you a lot harder, and and so suddenly it's like, yeah, it might be legit hard, you know, shading into nigh impossible to write because you have depression. Mm-hmm. Because you have like maybe manic depression, maybe psychothalmia, maybe generalized anxiety disorder, or or again, just let me say, or your dog died. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh boy, I don't feel like writing my romantic comedy anymore. Um, nobody would expect you to like make beautiful jewelry if your hand had been caught in a hydraulic press. Some serious uh, jewelry you've been making with that hydraulic <laughs> press. <laughs> And so I think the reason I push back against the myth of the author is if we keep going, oh, you're a magical unicorn and you have a magical unicorn disease called writer's block, it keeps people from correctly identifying what might really be going on in their lives, in their minds, in their lives, or honestly in the world um, that's affecting their ability to produce art. Um you know, I don't think that writer's block exists. I think undiagnosed, like, mood disorder exists um, that is either, you know, temporary or, or chronic. Um, so, yeah, I talk about it a lot. I think those conversations are very important. Yeah. Those good points. I hadn't thought of some of that. All right. Sam, we've kept the man long enough. Take us out. Ask, ask oh. the, uh, the, uh, our, our good ender. Oh, okay. So I'm like, take him out. (laughs) (laughs) A little red laser dot shows up on my head through the window. Yeah. Talk about having a shitty life. (laughs) Okay. So just just a fun little question. If you were any type of candy in the world, what type of candy would you be and why? I would be Turkish delight. Oh. Because you've heard such great things about me, and then you actually, after <laughs> all those years, you finally meet me, and you're like, you're like, oh fuck, it's Turkish delight. I've been dreaming about this ever since my childhood. Then you meet me, and you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, that oh, is been, so not true. <laughs> it would have been way better to never actually try this and just keep the dream alive. Everyone, that's it. Don't come see me. Don't come see me at an event. You'll be like, oh. Oh, Turkish Delight. Oh, you are Turkish Delight if Turkish Delight were the greatest thing in the world. Oh. <laughs> and didn't just get the powdery, gross stickiness all over your fingers. But Man, fuck Turkish Delight. <laughs> you want to know why C.S. Lewis was a great fantasy writer? It's that he, he spun a yarn so fabulous to turn Turkish Delight into oh, yeah. something edible. <laughs> So, Sam, we were joking, obviously, about T.S. Eliot there. Have you ever read his poems? I have. It's been a minute. Um, It was 
college time frame. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the, I mean, it's the only time anybody reads T.S. Eliot is when you're made to because of because of a class you took. Exactly. Um, now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's the one who didn't he write that Tiger Tiger Burning Bright? Uh, yes. Isn't that, yes, I believe okay. that's one of his. Yeah. And uh, what's that long thing? The Wasteland, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah. Like I said, any poem that needs footnotes, not for me. Exactly. It, yeah. I mean, if artwork for, for me, at least when I'm consuming someone's artwork in whatever format that may be, I either want to form my own take on it. Like, how do I interact with it and what do I take away from it? Which is often what I do with, with books, with written format. Um, and poems are the same way. I, I fully get that, you know, authors, they're writing in a time and under a certain mindset and they have messages to send in what they write. But when it comes to poetry, if I read it once and don't know what the hell I just read, <laughs> it's not for me. Um, I mean, rereading poetry is, is a great idea. Um, you'll pick up on more things. But if, if you don't even have a feeling of what direction you are emotionally supposed to go with that thing. Yeah. Um, and that is T.S. Eliot in a nutshell for me. Now, Robert Frost, we talk about him too. Totally different scenario. Totally different. Oh, yeah. It's like it's like two different genres. You know, I mean, I guess poetry has genres, but it's like mm-hmm. it's it's they were both writing in English, but it was like they were different languages. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, this this episode has already gone on entirely too long. We've probably lost everybody by this point. So we're just going to wrap it up. You don't need to hear us talk. You just listen to Pat Rothfuss chat for an hour and a half and nothing can top that. Um, so we're just going to go. And thank you guys so much for coming back week after week, for subscribing. If you don't subscribe, please subscribe for listening, for supporting, for writing us on, on Twitter and Facebook and, and, and getting in touch. Um, we really do appreciate it. Leave us a, a review on iTunes or the Google or, or the Stitcher or wherever you find the podcast to download. Uh, I am Jamie Green at The Roarbots. Samantha, and you can find me on Twitter at Samantha Fisher. And we will be back later this week, actually. We're going to be, I'm dropping two episodes this week. Surprise! So we'll see you later this week. Take care. Bye.